Good evening, everybody, and welcome to tonight's session of Chat with the Designer, your live, online, interactive weekly magazine for hams, homebrewers, and experimenters. This is your host, George N2APB, along with co-host Joe N2CX, and uh, we are really pleased to be here tonight, and we have a great session lined up. Um, we had so much good feedback relative to the Analyze This theme that we have done several times as far as circuits or um, some small schematics and so on, that Joe and I, um, at one of our scathingly, what we call our scathingly brilliant uh, idea breakfasts um, last week or so, we decided to uh, focus on, uh, to keep that theme going, perhaps once a month, we're going to select a, a radio or a circuit or something and uh, go through it kind of uh, analyze it, of course, and break it down from a user's perspective, from an operations perspective, to from a performance perspective, kind of like the questions that might go through your head as a technical person, as a homebrewing person, um, when you are looking to either buy or dive into a given circuit and you want to know a little bit more about it. So um, this will this will give you some information. Um, hopefully across the board on the different pieces of gear that we talk about uh, about every fourth week, perhaps. And uh, tonight we're going to be focusing on the PFR3. It's a three-band portable field radio, a design from the uh, uh, the deep, dark recesses, the, the incredibly talented uh, brain of uh, KD1JV, Steve Weber. And right at the top of the show here, we appreciate... Uh, uh, Steve uh, kind of letting us go and talk about his radio and also uh, for Doug Hendricks, uh, owner, proprietor, operator of uh, Hendricks Kits, who is the uh, provider of this kits. We have no affiliation with uh, Hendricks Kits or even or even Steve, regrettably. We'd love to have Steve join us here sometime. Um, but this is just a radio that we found, that Joe and I found to be a very uh, solid radio something that uh, was designed well. Um, it fit a very specific niche, uh, hit like a home run in that niche, and um, it's fun to use. So we wanted to take this time here to kind of go through it and uh, break it down a little bit, um, figure out, you know, uh, what it is, what that niche is, discuss the specifications a little bit, uh, talk about how it works, you know, what its best features are, and with our totally unbiased uh, type of approach here, what some of the, you know, the cons, you know, the pros and cons, well, this would be some of the cons of um, of the rig. You know, there's there's no silver bullet. There's no one rig that does everything. There's no one antenna that does everything, as we all know. And same here. So let's kind of discuss things um, interactively from that perspective and figure out what it is that uh, the PFR3 does really well and how it might fit with your particular operation. Um, again, we, we hope that uh, uh, you, you find this particular theme interesting and um, uh, let us know afterwards. And by the way, just as another aside, uh, I hope everybody caught the notes on the list about the podcast now being one quarter of the size it had been in the past. With the help of some of you um, smart guys that are listening here in the area of audio media processing, you were able to give me some tips, and I was able now to use um, a lot less bandwidth as far as 
uh, saving our hour-long, sometimes hour and a quarter, hour and 20-minute long presentations. And now about the average download size is about 40 megabytes, which is a lot better than 120 meg or so that it uh, has been. And I'm in the process of going back and resampling the old ones and kind of reducing the size overall. So if you put this on your media, on your portable media, your mobile phone and iPods and such, you might have a little bit more uh, uh, room there as a result. Okay, Joe, why don't, uh, I could, if I could ask you to get us started here, maybe start with an overview of what the heck is the PF, uh, PRF3. I do that again, doggone it. I see it in a typo, the, the PFR3, the portable friendly radio. Why is it friendly in a portable sense and what is its lineage, Joe? Okay, thank you very much, George. <clears throat> yeah, it is a uh, convenient little kit. George says it uh, it fills a niche. <clears throat> what it is is a uh, a three-band uh, QRP-CW transceiver that uh, is housed in a reasonable size case, so I mean it's handy for use in the field for uh, uh, casual portable operation. Certainly not a uh, contest-type rig, but if it's it's something you might want to take to the the field to uh, to operate. Um, and uh, when I say uh, small, um, the dimensions are just about the same size as the uh, uh, thick paperback copy of um, the book Centennial that I just got from a used bookstore. It's about the size of a thick uh, paperback book, uh, which is not a bad size for throwing in a backpack or uh, um, whatever, taking along in a canoe in a protective bag. Um, it is CW only. It runs five watts, uh, and it incorporates uh, not only the transceiver, a, uh, a transceiver with uh, direct digital signal uh, uh, signal preparation, uh, VFO, and tuning. It has a digital display in there, has a built-in keyer, uh, which is an iambic keyer, and a couple of memories. Uh, it also has a handy thing. It has a uh, built-in antenna tuner. The radio itself is based on the Steve Weber AT Sprint series radios, which were designed to be uh, used in an Altoids tin. This is a repackaging of it with it, a subset of the features, most of the features, um, along with a tuner, which was the BLT tuner, which was a NorCal and uh, Hendrix QRP kits tuner. So it's got an antenna tuner built in as well, a manual antenna tuner that is good for both balanced and unbalanced antennas. Uh, many of the automatic tuners are not uh, that way. In addition, built into the same case is a, um, a battery holder to hold nine uh, AA cells with alkaline cells that will give you 12 volts. Um, if you use NICADs or nickel metal hydrides, you get 9.6 volts. With the 12 volts, you get the full 5 watts. With the uh, NICADs, you get about uh, 4, 4.5 watts. So it's a very handy little package, and it can also be used with uh, external uh, external power. Very handy little package for uh, portable use. Uh, as I say, it covers three bands. It covers um, the three popular ones for portable operation most of the time, 40, 30, and 20 meters, and a CW only. Um, there was a, a, an attach-on paddle available. It's no longer available, but... Uh, it's not too bad to uh, take along a small portable paddle along with it and have yourself a 
self-contained portable station. Uh, you trying to break me, George? Yeah, uh, when you're ready, I just I was just going to, if we take a break at, um, in between the pros and before we get into the cons, I have a couple of comments and uh, I can launch us into the kind of interactively with the cons. Okay, yeah, I wasn't even doing the uh, the pros yet. I, I was doing an overview. Uh, I'll do a little more in-depth uh, uh, thing with the pros if you want. Oh, no, no, by all means, continue on. Now, what I was doing is just trying to set the stage. Okay, um, that said, overview. Now, uh, as I mentioned in the uh, in the preliminary stuff, uh, it is an all-in-one self-contained QRP CW transceiver. It's got everything you need in there, but an antenna and a uh, paddle. Um, an, an advantage over the uh, uh, application trail uh, sprint radios that uh, Steve designed, it has no plug-in band modules. Uh, the, you switch, there are switches on there to, to uh, uh, switch bands, so it's much more convenient that way, much less clumsy. There is a synthesizer in there for good frequency stability, good frequency resolution, and reasonably simple, uncomplicated operation. Uh, there's not a million bells and whistles and switches and knobs and deep menus that to confuse you when you're sitting on a log trying to trying to work somebody. Uh, it does have a numerical uh, display, LED display for uh, the uh, functions in there and um, the operating frequency. And it has um, RIT, uh, rece receiver incremental tuning, so that you can tune the receiver off a little bit from your transmit frequency to uh, either to work uh, split or to, uh, if someone doesn't have their transmit receive lined up exactly, you can move a little off. There's also a direct frequency mode. And that's important because the tuning, like the ATS rigs, is by up and down switches, which go, I think, 50 hertz at a crack. But there is a direct frequency entry where you can plug in um, whatever frequency in the band you want directly and then tune around from there. The tuner will handle both balanced and unbalanced feed lines or a random wire and ground. Uh, very handy that way. And I did cover the internal battery pack and the external uh, thing. And it covers only the um, 20, 30, and 40 meter bands. And it is CW only. Um, and it, another real advantage is it's low cost. It's less than $250. Uh, many of the rigs, uh, for example, the, um, the K1s, the K2s, obviously, but ones intended for portable use, K1s, the KX1 are... Um, about double that. So, you know, it fills a low-cost, simple niche. And um, a pro uh, pushed by uh, Doug Hendricks is that the yellow case is hard to lose in the field. Uh, not too much in the in the field is bright yellow. And if this gets covered up by leaves or whatever, you're going to have a hard time losing it. Uh, any questions or comments? I was amazed by the low current draw. Looking down, I see that it's only like 70 mils on receive, which is pretty darn good for um, a DDS radio, three-band radio in the field, don't you think? Absolutely. Steve uh, pulled out all the stops when he uh, when he uh, designed this, and he intentionally picked a lower power DDS chip um, to do this. One of the handicaps is he can't go above, um, I think it's 17 meters in the basic design, but uh, it is a very low operating current, which 
for DDS rigs is uh, is quite unusual. Yeah, we'll get into that a little bit too because there are some power. You know, you and I have played around with the DDS uh, circuits for a long time, and uh, they can be power hogs. Steve has worked some really uh, good magic with the DDS chip, and he's uh, keeping it at a lower frequency, but he's he still runs it up um, at, a, at a good um, clock rate. So uh, that's a that's a that's a pretty good thing. Um, you mentioned though it's three band, and one of the items that we heard some feedback on is that um, it's not expandable. So it's a three band rig, but unlike the ATS. It does not have pluggable band modules in order for you to, to kind of change them around. Um, was there a reason that he did that specifically, do you recall? Yeah, the reason was simplicity. He picked the three uh, most usable, the most popular bands for portable operation, probably from an antenna and propagation standpoint. I just standardized on them. Um, to make it simple, uh, you know, to not have to worry about... Um, um, lead lengths particularly with switching and to make uh, stocking parts for uh, Hendrix QRP kits easier. Aha. Uh -huh. um, by the way, does anybody have the PFR portable field radio? Um, uh, who has the PFR3? I have one. I've got one and I know Dale got a, about a dozen of them. Okay, I wasn't even looking. I, I I know Lee has one, and who else spoke up? I'm sorry. K5TD. I built one several years ago. Great. And Dale Dale WC7S uh, has built a whole bunch of them, as you well know now. As as we, indeed we do. So um, I'm not. I didn't know that you knew that we knew, or maybe Lee mentioned it. Yeah, we we chatted at length with uh, Dale who very graciously uh, spent some time with us. And we do not have, uh, Joe and I do not have uh, uh, the PFR3s. We've used them. I've used them um, very briefly. But and we've seen them. Uh, Nick, I forgot Nick's call. He comes to the New Jersey QRP club meetings and uh, uh, when we have them in Brooklawn in person. And he bring, he usually brings his along. And he's very much a uh, uh, proponent of it. And we've talked a lot about that. So that that's that's good. Um Joe, some other um, peculiarities. You mentioned the, uh, uh, the the switching is convenient because it's easily done, but others I've heard provide uh, or provide some feedback saying that it's a little bit confusing. Um, uh, is, why is that? Do you think? Well, <laughs> it is a little confusing. In order to simplify things and to keep uh, power low, Steve used. Um, slide switches for the uh, for the band switches uh, and there's an input uh, there are two switches you have to switch to uh, change bands there's an input and an output switch on each filter uh, there are three filters for the three different bands and you have to remember to um, operate all those switches or both those switches in tandem otherwise uh, you know you won't have the right you'll have no filter switched in unless you uh, operate them all in the right position. There are other switches for um, the battery, for um, the tuner, and um, it can be a little confusing if you're not familiar with, uh, with the switches and the operation of the, uh, the whole radio, but it is manually selected. Uh, Steve intentionally did that 
so they didn't have to put in a number of relays, which uh, could have drawn significantly more power, um, as some other rigs do. In addition, the uh, the, the receiver preselector is manual. You have to tune that. It doesn't it doesn't change bands. You have to tweak it um, as you change bands. Otherwise, the receiver will be very deaf. Could you say the last part again and underscore it? I think it's uh, an important item. Yeah, the um, receiver doesn't band switch. The receiver tuning doesn't band switch. And there's a manual uh, preselector knob that you have to tune to the band you're operating on. Um, it's not enough simply to switch the transmitter filters. You have to you have to retune the uh, and tweak up the uh, receiver preselector as you change bands from say from 30 to 20 meters. You have to tweak it up and peak on noise, otherwise uh, you won't hear anything. And you know, just one more thing to remember. And once you get familiar, it's not a big deal. You know, funny. It's uh, um, if you if one has gone through the years of of putting together simple radios and um, you know assembling some radios by means of uh, following schematics and magazine articles and so on <clears throat> you tend to have been playing with these kinds of radios that are simple by nature and ultimately you get used to that that particular need as you're describing to to retune off and it's not a it's not a, a capability that handles itself uh, um, um, by uh, you know with with additional circuitry and and hence cost so i think this is uh, an example of of what steve you know has taken um a particular design goal and that is of making it simple um and, and lo lower cost and at the cost or the price of having a little bit more user interaction a little bit more user knowledge of the switches and how to tune up the radio frankly i don't think it's much of a of a big deal and i think as you said once you kind of get used to it it's it's uh it, it's pretty straightforward how about the um um oh and as dale dale is saying in the um in the text section is uh it's handy to de it is handy to detune if being confronted with strong unwanted signals too ah good point so if you have some strong unwanted signals nearby that uh you can you can detune the receiver uh, the front end a little bit and ultimately um, kind of uh, use it as a bit of an RF gain, I would think, kind of uh, uh, control for controlling that side uh, sideband interference. About right, Joe? Yeah, strong signal interference is something that might uh, clobber the front end of the receiver. It does have an internal AGC, but uh, it's nice to have a manual control to, uh, to back off when you've got somebody really strong uh, pumping your receiver gain. Let's talk for a minute about the tuning. I, I find uh, with my ATS-3B that I have and you have, and I think you've got a, a 4 as well, ATS-4, um, they all use the the push buttons for up and down tuning. And it's kind of really neat on a, on a small rig like the ATS series. I'm wondering how it might be on a larger rig, although not huge but i mean it's a it's obviously larger than the ats3 we've got that picture on the web page, on the whiteboard that shows and i tried to keep them in pretty or at least somewhat relative size the ats3 the uh the grandfather of uh design for for the pfr3 
is uh, a lot smaller, and but um, the user controls are the same on the PFR3. So um, how do you think that goes over, Joe? Well, it, it all depends. It, it is a matter of getting used to. Uh, I, I've used the ATS. I have the ATS3B uh, and an MDR that's in the uh, in the, uh, the position of being built. Maybe we ought to let somebody else uh, who's very familiar with it, like Dale, uh, talk about the thing with the up-down switches. Hey, Dale. Yeah, just as the background, of course, we chatted again at, at length with Dale last night, and he offered, gosh, I took some notes, two pages full of uh, great information, and uh, having put together some 24 um, PFR3s, it, uh, he has, he's got some great observations, and he really enjoys the rig. He's very positive on it, if I can speak for him while he's here. And um, there's, uh, you know, as he said, it, it just fits the fits the bill quite right. And um, Dale mentions that there's if there's a dirt problem with the switches, the slide switches in the front panel, if there's a dirt problem, um, felt can be used in the top of the switches, underneath the top case, in order to control that influx. So almost act like a seal if it uh, if things are set right. And that's a good trick with uh, any kind of slide switches. Um, yeah, this, um, I really, I personally enjoy the, the up-down push-button switches for frequency control. Joe, there is a, uh, I believe there's a mod, um, an aftermarket kind of suggestion for putting an optical encoder, or at least a rotary encoder, into the radio. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a real expert on it, but there is, uh, there's a, a fellow in Europe who has uh, uh, done a mod it's a little board that fits in um, fits in the radio um, with with some uh, modifications. Since it takes up a little room with a PFR3, it's easier if you um, uh, build up the board knowing that you're going to have to put this thing in the case and uh, position some of the components properly. But it's a little board with an optical encoder and some switches on there to take the place of the up-down switches. Um, as I recall, the cost is about $35. The guy period periodically makes kits available. It also works with the ATS radios. Uh, it's right in. However, obviously, you're not going to get that in an Altoids tin. But it, it makes it feel more like a regular analog tuning radio. Um, draws a little more power, but it's only uh, another 10, 10 mils or so. But for those who, um, who want to do a lot of frequency changing and, and change... Um, more than a couple kilohertz at a time, it, uh, it gives another option if you buy this uh, aftermarket uh, encoder kit. Uh, back in the day when I could uh, solder without my hand shaking, I built an ATS-1, and uh, I found the up-down tuning on that to be absolutely maddening. There was no way I could keep it straight. If I came across a signal and it wasn't quite tuned in, I'd keep pushing on whatever button got me there. When in fact I should have probably pushed the other button, but uh, for some reason I'm having a lot easier time with the uh, the PFR3 and keeping track of what does get pushed. That's good to hear. And I was going to say that um, essentially, I find that when you get a radio that has I, I won't say quirks, but certain design characteristics, such as this uh, with the the two-handed band switch with the two slide switches and the and the push buttons for the up and down frequency control and other switches, um, it gives it character. It gives it its own 
behavior and, and, and kind of its own persona. And it's something that if you use the radio enough, and I think that's the key, um, it really, it really grows on you and you, and you really kind of like it. And in my case, um, Again, I didn't have, I don't have the PFR3. I have some other thing. Well, like the ATS3, there's been a bunch of mods out for that. There's no way that I would change away from the the way that that radio is built uh, and operating. Although you could put uh, a rotary encoder on it and you could put other things. I, I kind of like it for what it is. And I think that uh, most people would, would uh, most users, you know, who'd use it in, for any length of time would find it to be the same way. Robert, you uh, K5TD, you've had it for a while. Do you continue to use it, and do you find what I say true for your case? Yes, I think it is a great little rig. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, I'm not a backpacker or a camper. But when I bought my Flex 1500, I uh, sort of left the uh, PFR3 on the shelf. But I think it's a great radio. Oh, good. Now I've got a KX1, uh, which is kind of like the same the same genre category, um, and but as Joe said, it's about twice as expensive. Be that as it may, um, you know it's it's got its own persona as I've sort of described it, and I and I like it too, and I use it fairly frequently. Um, something that uh, I don't use on the KX1, and I'm wondering if people who have the PFR can comment on is the key, the bolt-on key that goes under the front uh, the front side. Um, I noted that it's no longer available, so I suspect uh, Doug Hoff is not manufacturing any more of them. But of course, it's very easy to add in your own key, plug it in, and having that you know floating key or you know and kind of jury rig it up such that uh, another key connects to it. So I'm wondering if anybody can comment on the key and how it operated if you happen to have had the rig. Lee, did you, did you use the, the key very often? Uh, this, uh, Yeah, I, I used it a little bit in the beginning, and I, get, I got so upset with it that I, it just totally screwed up my sending. Uh, so I finally uh, took it off, and uh, I don't even know where I put it, somewhere in this mess, mess down here. I'm not excited about the, the – I wasn't excited about that part of it at all. There's another comment I want to make on the uh, – on the antenna tuner too, and we get if you get to it later on over. Oh sure, yeah. and please, if anybody, whether you have a PFR or not, if you have a question, please pop, um, you know, pop in here. The whole nature of this, analyze this, and we'll get down to the uh, schematic in just a little bit. Um, but is is intended to be very interactive. If you've got a question on your mind about the rig, we'd love to chat about it. And uh, what we're doing is just sort of leading discussion along areas that we find interesting, intriguing, curious. Uh, for example, um, something that I found kind of curious and kind of incongruous with low current was the um, the LED displays. It's not often that we see the LED displays on, on rigs these days. Um, and I have always associated them with a higher current type of uh, draw, uh, higher current needs. Um, and um, obviously, Steve has found a way to multiplex the um, the signals going to the display so as to not pull as much current yet still get as much of the display uh, to be visible as he as he uh, was able to. I have noted that a couple of people have said that the um, the display kind of washes out 
and it's harder to see perhaps in, in maybe in the high sunlight uh, time periods. But um, I, I think that it's an older technology that has really served in well in this design. Joe, comments on the LED display? Yeah, I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm also intrigued that Steve is able to get uh, that working as well as he does with low power. I think it it takes an extra 10 or 15 mils when the um, when the display is active. <clears throat> it is a good job of uh, probably hitting the LEDs a little hard, as you say, and then multiplexing them so that they're not on all the time. So the peak intensity is high, but the average is uh, is is quite usable. Um, in another lifetime, I worked for a uh, watch company who made uh, watches with LED displays, and that was the current drain for those LEDs was a killer. Steve's done an excellent job. He also has a low power mode where the thing will periodically switch off and save you a little more current if you don't need the uh, the display on continuously. Yeah, very good. Um, another peculiarity, or not as much a peculiarity, but a, perhaps a, a potential problem. Dale mentioned this with us. Uh, um, oh, wait a minute here. Rick says, compare with the new PSK display. What do you mean by that, Rick? Uh, obviously, when you were in the design for the new PSK, you had to consider the, the display that you're using there, and you chose an, an LED, or LCD. Uh, versus the uh, LED, the uh, LED here, uh, and I wonder what your your considerations were when you chose one over the other. Oh, okay. Um, well, it was fundamentally the the display on the on the new PSK um, modem had to serve double purpose with uh, providing us a band scope. Uh, we had one of the first uh, band scopes that was available on a portable device because we had the internal DSP processing um, in it. So we had a display goal or a design requirement that the display had to handle um, a spectrum display, you know, a band scope uh, to be able to show the, uh, um, the, the, the rise and fall of the signals and the presence of CW or other uh, digital mode signals there on the band across its 2 kilohertz bandwidth. Um, and that's pretty hard to do, although you can do it and not very good resolution or, or it doesn't look good when you do it with LEDs, but, um, with LED displays, but it, um, but that was the main reason. So either we're, we, we, we would have had an LCD for the band scope, but, and then a frequency display in LEDs, but we decided to do it all in one, uh, one particular uh, display and that's probably the design goal of a lot of radios and equipment these days. I mean, there's such a tendency to want to put in various other information in a display for obvious reasons. It's, it's very helpful to the operator uh, to see non-text type of user interface. Maybe it's a bar graph that goes up or down or to the right and left. Um, maybe it's the signals as with the band scope. Maybe it's a, a graphic symbol. That changes relative to the mode of the rig or a signal that's being received. Anything to give you additional information as the operator is a very th handy thing to provide. So that's when L uh, LCDs, when liquid crystal displays become became kind of prevalent, it became a designer's uh, um, playground. We were able to put a lot of different kind of information into the displays, whereas previously with just LEDs it was difficult. And... Uh, 
it pretty much was a big enabler for us to take processing more in an embedded uh, case with the radios for field use as opposed to depending on graphic displays on the PC that more often than not is better suited for the uh, for the desktop. Um, Joe, you want to carry on with, uh, oh, I know where I was headed, and maybe you can take this up and, and kind of finish it off, finish off the cons perhaps before we get into the schematic, is the, uh, I think it's interesting the way that some people feel that um, the PFR is more sensitive to high SWR and popping of the uh, the finals, as they say, um, and it's not really the case, but only for a very certain type of corner condition if you're not careful. Okay, yeah, the um, the finals in the oops, hello, someone trying to break in? No, nope, guess not. The the finals in the um, uh, PFR three as in the ATS series rigs. Um, use some paralleled uh, uh, MOSFETs, and they uh, they have a tendency to, uh, if you abuse them, to pop. Mainly that's uh, if you have high SWR and a changing SWR, and particularly if you use too high a supply voltage. If you go above uh, 12 and a half volts, you'll pop them. Um, some people have more trouble with that than others. Um, I've had... Uh, I've had no difficulty with mine, and I've uh, accidentally once or twice operated the thing into an open circuit, short circuit, or uh, bad SWR. But um, Dale pointed out that particularly if you have um, higher supply voltage and a changing SWR, um, they can damage the finals. But, um, you know, uh, your mileage may vary. Some people have uh, real bad luck with it. The, uh, one of the advantages in the um, um, ATS, uh, I'm sorry, the PFR3, is that it has uh, the TALO um, SWR bridge, which uses resistors. So when you're trying to tune and you have that thing in line, it reduces the SWR that the rig sees to 2 to 1 or less, so that uh, you, won't, uh, you won't fry the final while you're tuning up. And then, um, you know, there's no loss while you're... Uh, while you're uh, uh, once you're on normal operation, so you know that is uh, that is a handicap. But many other rigs have uh, have the same issue, and uh, primarily if you keep the supply voltage uh, below uh, 12 and a half volts, if you have 13.8 uh, or higher voltage, put some diodes in series, knock it down. And as Dale pointed out, we spoke to him the other night. He runs his radio on NICADs most of the time, or nickel metal hydrides. Uh, running about 12 at uh, 10 volts instead of 12, he gets four watts, and you can hardly tell the difference from five watts. So that's not uh, not all that bad. Um, one of the other disadvantages, to some extent, to uh, those who uh, want to do all sorts of things, is unlike uh, things like the uh, the now very popular KX3, you can't connect this radio to a computer. To use it, you can't handle digital modes, but uh, no, that's um, that's a low percentage operation, and um, particularly connecting to an external computer is not anything that most people do in the field. Um, any questions or comments regarding the uh, the uh, problems with the SWR? I had a devil's time getting mine to uh, 
get my brain around what the switchology was for using coax instead of a balanced line. And uh, I'm not even sure. I, I think I'd have to go back through my emails with and discussions with uh, Dale to get it right again. Uh, but there's something about, there's a tune operate. Well, that one's easy. But there's a coax BLT switch position that is counterintuitive to me. And also the antenna switch on the back is counterintuitive. If, if Dale can get talking, he, he'd be, it'd be really good to hear his uh, solutions to that or be able to tell you what's going on. Give it a try, Dale. Nope, no audio, Dale. Sorry about that. Uh, sorry, indeed. Perhaps you can, uh, well, yeah, he's trying to do it with a text uh, text line. It can be confusing. Um, the the um, the BLT, there is a, an on-off switch or a, an on-bypass switch that uh, has to be set up to operate uh, with a coaxial feed line if you're not going to use the tuner. Separate from that is um, the uh, switch on the back for the BLT output. And that can be used either with a balanced antenna or unbalanced. But uh, that's only if you need to have uh, some tuning with an unbalanced yeah. antenna. If you're just operating with coax, use the... Um, the bypass switch that bypasses the uh, the BLT to tune uh, to uh, operate and uh, takes that um, takes the tuner totally out of the uh, position. It's a familiarity thing. Uh, I think once you get used to it, it's not too bad. Could we go to um, let's drop down to the specifications box on the on the whiteboard and just go through this uh, kind of quickly and kind of interpret it uh, just. We've touched on a lot of the items, but I just want to kind of uh, review things, uh, okay? Sure, no problem. Yeah, as we've mentioned, it uh, it covers three bands, 40, 30, and 20 meters, uh, and it will cover the whole, well, it covers all of 40 meters in the U.S., all of the 30-meter band in the U.S., and it tunes 14.000 to 14.350 on 20 meters. It is CW only, however, and the uh, receiver filters are narrow enough that you really can't use it to receive single sideband. So you've got to remember that. Receiver is pretty hot at um, two tenths of a microvolt uh, minimum signal, minimum detectable signal, MSD, hmm, should be MDS, um, which is pretty good. Far more than you need for um, HF. Because normally the noise is many, many microvolts, so uh, you uh, you can't use uh, can't use all the sensitivity it's got. It's very hot. Selectivity. I think the specs here say 300 hertz. As I recall, it's really uh, 600 hertz. 300 would be a bit narrow. Uh, receive current with no signal is um, 47 mils when you have the display active, 34 mils when it's idle is not bad at all. You run a long time on batteries with that. Transmitter is rated at 5 watts on all bands, um, and that's with uh, 12 volts, somewhat less, perhaps 4 volts with um, um, 9 volts, or 10 volts. And uh, the spurs, Steve did an excellent job with that. All the spurious and harmonic outputs are 50 dB down from the carrier, a very, very clean transmitter. The internal iambic care can be used on either iambic A or iambic B. Uh, myself, 
iambic confuses me. I guess a klutz. And there are two um, uh, 63 char uh, character key or memories uh, selectable. And it can be adjusted uh, in speed from 5 to 35 words per minute. Or if you plug in a straight key, when you power up, the radio recognizes this and goes over to straight key operation so that you can use a regular, um, regular old-fashioned uh, straight key. The tuner is capable of operating uh, either balanced or unbalanced line or an open wire. You can switch the, the um, tuner completely out and go right with a coaxial feed line if you have low SWR. Size, as I mentioned, is 7.3 by 4.4 by 1.6 high, which is about the size of a thick paperback book. And um, I don't see the weight listed. I think the weight is uh, probably uh, half or three quarters of a pound, not very heavy. Most of the weight is probably the batteries when you've got them in there. And it'll operate over a supply voltage of 8 volts to 12.5 volts, although it's recommended for best operation you operate between 9 and 12 volts. Um, any questions on that? How about the keyer memories on that? Uh, there are two keyer memories. I don't remember. Oh, 63 character memories. There are two of them. You can put in a total of 63 characters in each. Can you use the uh, character memories uh, without the uh, the cure that comes with it? I frankly don't know. Uh, probably Lee or or um, uh, Dale would know. Uh, Lee, how about that? It's my understanding. I've never used the memories because I could. I have a difficult time <laughs> with my code as it is, rather than make it smooth enough for the machine to follow. Uh, I honestly don't know the answer to that. You know, I'm uh, I'm amazed by all the things that Steve is able to cram into uh, these processors, the microcontrollers. Uh, being an embedded firmware programmer myself, with uh, some of the radios and and projects here on the bench, it's sometimes a challenge to do that. And he he takes it that uh, that the next step beyond anything that most most of us are able to do. And uh, he, it looks like he's done a real fine job in this, in this uh, radio. It's uh, the processor, as we'll see in just a moment, is um, I believe is an Atmega, an 18 mega uh, chip. So um, it's got some good horsepower, but still, no matter how much you got, Steve takes it to the limit, and he's put some good things in there. I like I like specifically the iambic B. I think iambic B mode for the keyer is the more popular one, um, uh, or the most popular one um, out there out of out of all uh, keyer operators. But uh, be that as it may, have being able to switch it around is is, is kind of uh, kind of helpful. Um, Joe, let's slide down to the schematic, and we will not go through this on a on a component by component basis. But what we'd like to do is to go through it at a block level. A block diagram level. Now, lacking a block diagram from um, uh, the um, the kit manual, um, and that's not a that's not a negative thing at all. It's just it, there's no block diagram there. We decided to kind of parse through the schematic and draw some bubbles as we normally do when we're analyzing circuits around the major components, the major blocks of uh, functions here in the circuit, and, and kind of go through it in that manner. 
Um, in, uh, I guess we would probably start uh, right there. We've already mentioned the Atmega. It's an Atmega 48, and that is the um, in bubble number one. And of course, it performs the I/O for the uh, for the rig. The input and output uh, is handled. Uh, by it's uh, the control of the display we see there the display and it's a multiplex display so the signals going to those display components are 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 scanned and um, uh, change in, changing in uh, in time in order to get the multiplexing and display of the uh, of the information in the displays um, the, there are switches in um, well, close to the, inter the intersection of bubble number one and bubble number two for the keyer, the RIT, the tuning up and the tuning down. And you see those and rather a clever, uh, a clever way that Steve has done, just as a, a note, those are not four individual inputs to the microcontroller. They go to a, an analog input um, port and based on which switch is depressed, it, it uh, brings the junction of a resistor along that string down to ground, presenting a different analog voltage to the microcontroller. So the microcontroller is able to detect, for example, if that input is at a level of, uh, what do we have, 5 volts? Let's just assume it's a 5 volt system. And it is. So we've got 5 volts. Um, um, a switch depressed might be uh, three volts present three volts to the microcontroller. Another switch being depressed might present two and a half. Another switch might present two, and so on. So Steve has made efficient use of uh, the I/O pins in his controller. And of course, also going into the microcontroller is the paddle. The dot and dash uh, lines for the the paddle are going directly into the uh, the Edmega uh, 48 controller. The controller also produces side tone uh, signal, which goes over to the audio section on the uh, second page, such that uh, when when the key is depressed, you, it actually generates a tone, and you're able to hear and use it as feedback while you're transmitting. And uh, it also has a mute control, so it goes, again, also to the second page, and it's able to turn off the receive section when you're transmitting, which is a very valuable thing. Um, and it's all under control of the of the microcontroller. Joe, do you want to uh, take us uh, up to the DDS? Certainly, yeah. The DDS is uh, really the heart of what uh, tunes the radio. It's controlled by the um, by the Atmel um, controller. It um, gets its control signals to set the uh, the operating frequency. It's a direct um, digital synthesizer. Which means that it uh, it internally generates a uh, a sine wave at the uh, at the output frequency um, that's used by the radio, and uh, it's tuned to either the uh, receive frequency for receiving, which has a uh, an IF offset, or uh, for transmitting it tunes to the transmit frequency. It also takes uh, takes into account the transmit receive offset frequency, where the um, Transmitter is a little offset from the the uh, receive frequency, so that uh, uh, you're not trying to zero beat somebody. You have a little you have the um, the CW tone, 700 hertz or so. Uh, it has crystal stability. It runs from a, uh, a quartz crystal oscillator, 
So it's very, very stable in accuracy. Uh, you, you tune in, I think it's 50 hertz steps, and um, that's pretty darn accurate to get you on the right frequency. So you either stay within the band you want, or you can set up a frequency and meet somebody exactly where you want to. And uh, it's a lower frequency synthesizer chip that has uh, relatively low supply current uh, to preserve batteries, um, which, as George mentioned, uh, even so, is pretty amazing. Because um, DDS chips, many of them uh, tend to be current hogs. And um, this one is a particularly good one. It also provides a, uh, a low, relatively no, low noise and uh, spurious output um, characteristic of the signal so that you genera don't generate a lot of off-frequency signals when you transmit and uh, you don't have a lot of birds in the receiver. Overall, a very, very good design and uh, tailored very well for uh, this application. Yeah. You know, when something comes to mind here, Joe. And this truly, I, it didn't dawn on me until now. Um, the the radio is advertised as as being ham band only, and um, oftentimes one can understand that to be the case. Um, I might answer my question while while saying it. Um, why I'm looking at the circuit here, and I'm wondering what is it that's limiting it to be ham band only? Besides, of course, the the programming uh, in the code. Of the uh, of the Admel that would be preventing it uh, from going outside the ham bands, but for receive only, um, for receiver general coverage receiver is a, or at least a wide wide band receiver is a nice thing to have. Um, we don't see any limitations um, other than perhaps just on the receive filters on the receive side that we haven't gotten to yet. That's probably it. Well, it's uh, designed only to receive CW. And there's not a lot of CW that you're going to be listening to when you're operating portable. Um, so there's not much uh, not much need to tune outside the band. You had made a comment in text just a moment ago. Maybe you just want to follow up on that. Uh, the memories are only accessible when using a paddle, or at least both memories. Um, using a key, you can only get to one memory? Well, theoretically, yes. Uh, you can get to the one but it's messy. It's, it, to me, it's not very intuitive. I don't even like the memories when I'm in straight key mode, but you can get to one. How does the microprocessor communicate with the uh, oscillator? Well, um, if you look at, uh, there are three signals, um, and I'm looking at it right, and I'm trying to, there's, um, it's like an I2C type of communication. There's S clock, S data, and there should be something called uh, load, but there are three three signals that the um, uh, actually three signals that the microcontroller uh, puts out. You can see it right near the number one in bubble number one, where the number one there's a couple of resistors. Um, those signals go over and serially communicate to the DDS chip in order to command it. Every time you turn the dial, every time you turn the dial, there's a new command word. 40 bits, I think, is the same technique that the uh, 9834 uses. Uh, maybe not, but nonetheless, there's an, an, uh, a large word that's sent over to the DDS to command it to generate a different uh, frequency. Was that what you were asking? Uh, yes, it was. I was wondering whether we just told it to go up or go down, or whether it sent a, a fresh frequency every time you touch the push button. 
Oh, it's a fresh frequency and a new transmission, which is um, good and bad, I guess, from a, one perspective of, of noise and the system. When you're not touching the dial, there's no there's no new words, no new generation commands being sent over to the uh, DDS chip. But as you do turn the dial, there is some additional signals that if the radio is not designed well or uh, if the PCB is not routed very well, that noise can get into the system and... Uh, you can hear clicks as you're turning through the dial and so on. So you have to be careful of that as a designer. Um, most most people who are using the DDS chips, uh, Steve especially, are very well aware of that, and they've optimized the layout and uh, and the, the drive levels going to the DDS for that purpose. Um, Joe, what would it take, and, and I'm kind of jumping ahead, but I'm staying on the topic of uh, if one were to make it a wider band, um, open up to have it be more than just uh, CW width type of signals. Um, well, let, let's hold that, actually. I'm sorry for the diversion, but let's hold that till we get to the audio on the second page, because I think that's where the answer is. Joe, can you address uh, bubble number five? Bubble number four coming out of the DDS chip is just the low-pass filter that kind of takes additional spurious signals um, and uh, higher-level uh, harmonics out of the signal such that it is, that's how Steve is able to achieve such a, a good, uh, uh, what was it, minus 50 dB down um, for the for the, for the the harmonics. But for the transmitter starting in, uh, in block number five, how does Steve get such nice power yet low current uh, supply? <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll hold the receiver question in advance. And it's IF, not audio. Um, what he does uh, for the transmitter is, is reasonably clever. Rather than using uh, regular old RF power transistors, with this low power, he's found that he can drive the um, drive a couple uh, MOSFETs. They're TO92 MOSFETs, plain old uh, regular transistor-sized MOSFETs, three of them in parallel. And he drives the gates of them very hard through some digital logic. There's... Um, couple stages of gates there to give a very, very uh, steep-sided square waveform so that he drives those transistors hard on and hard off um, at the operating frequency. And then uh, that produces a square wave output that's then filtered by um, the um, switched low-pass filters for each band to remove the harmonics. But the fast switching on-off uh, driving them with square waves and having square wave uh, current produced by, um, switched by those FETs uh, makes it a very, very efficient uh, final. Uh, it's almost like a Class D type transmitter, which is a switching type transmitter. So you can get the high power with a um, with a low low current. At any rate, that's, that's the whole secret to it. It's uh, some um, fast turn on. Uh, low resistance uh, fats that are driven by a square wave to um, to um, give you a pretty high operating efficiency. The whole thing takes on 800 mils at uh, 12 volts to uh, produce a 5 watts out, which is about a 50% efficiency. Not bad for uh, some cheap transistors. Say again the mode of uh, of those finals and what mode is the transmitter operating? Well, it's something like a class D, um, D as in Delta, 
there are some other um, some other things about conduction angle and the uh, the load impedance on the uh, on the finals that make it like a class D or class E. But this is a semi or a quasi class D switching type um, transmitter amplifier. All right. Now let's come down to bubble number six, and you had mentioned it, Joe. This is a good filter, a good low-pass filter, which is able to take out a lot of those harmonics that are introduced by driving uh, those BS170 transistors, the output finals, uh, so hard and allows the resultant signal that comes out of the left side of those uh, LPFs uh, at the band switch S7 to be nice and clean. So um, if for the interested student, as K7QO would say, um, the uh, you could go through this low-pass filter design using the tools that we reviewed and had some lab experiments about, uh, oh gosh, it had to be like six months, seven months ago, the low-pass filter projects that we did here on Chet with the designers. You could actually apply um, these values into some of the equations of the tools that we used and see where the roll-off frequencies are. And also, it might be kind of an interesting exercise for the student to look at um, the capacitors that are across the um, inductors, three of the inductors, you would see them there. And those are their specific purpose in order to reduce um, produce an additional uh, dip or, or to take out a um, a harmonic or perhaps a clock signal which is uh, has a tendency of getting through the system. So Steve was prescient enough and uh, wise enough to kind of tailor his low-pass filter to really keep those harmonics down to produce a, a really uh, um, a good performing radio transmitter. Coming out of filter number block number six we go into the uh, um, the operate or tune switch, which then allows you to uh, flip in the TALO SWR bridge. Joe, you want to comment on that one? Sure, glad to. Yeah, the TALO bridge is, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's a, uh, a resistive type bridge. It uses um, some 51 ohm resistors um, to um, act as kind of a Wheatstone bridge. Uh, I won't go into great depth. We've done it with other things, other um, projects in uh, in the series, but um, it gives you the ability to have a, a bridge to tell you when the SWR is getting low, and that's the basic idea with this. When the output is exactly 50 ohms, 51 ohms, um, the voltage across the center of the bridge will be minimum, and there's a transformer that looks across the center of the bridge and then that goes, it steps up the voltage and is detected by a diode, the resistor to a, an LED. The purpose of that is to look at the voltage across the center of the bridge and look for balance, which says low SIBR. And at, at uh, balance, you have the very lowest voltage. So the intensity of the, uh, the LED goes out when you're perfectly matched and it becomes brighter and brighter as you get far from a match. Um, vantage, so it's, it's very simple. You just tweak, uh, tweak your tuner or whatever or minimum intensity on the LED to tell when you're properly matched. The other advantage of using a resistive bridge like this is that when you have the bridge switched in, 
um, it reduces the SWR that the radio sees to a low value. Even though you may have a high uh, SWR on the output, it keeps you from subjecting the, uh, the transmitter to a, a high SWR. So a very handy circuit, uh, very clever um, on Dan Taylor's uh, part to design something this simple. It is, and it's a very easy uh, circuit that you can build and put into your own um, projects on the bench, and uh, it works uh, fairly well. And I think Dale had mentioned when we were speaking with him last night that uh, some people complain with a small C, but still complain that you know they're unable to tune it very well. But in actuality, they're just moving too fast through the tune point and not seeing the dip of the SWR. So understanding that it's a it's a very narrow when you're when you're tuning it with with a tuner that we'll mention in just a, a moment here. Of course, um, the uh, um, do it slowly so we can actually see the dip and then I think it's a high um, intensity LED so it's it's uh, perhaps helpful for higher bright brighter conditions you can actually see it then too but uh, you'll actually see the the dip if you move uh, slowly through uh, the tuning and speaking of tuning coming over to bu uh, bubble number eight You'll see the somewhat familiar, if you've been around anywhere around for the last 10 years in QRP, you'll see the very popular BLT or the Z-Match um, antenna tuner configuration popularized back in that time period by Charlie Lofgren. Oh gosh, I can't remember his call. Um, but uh, um, Doug and NorCal at that time had popularized it in the form of the, uh, the NorCal BLT and uh, many kits were produced. In fact, Joe and I, with uh, the New Jersey QRP Club, uh, had produced a, a case, a PCB case, for uh, the BLT tuner. A little small, oh gosh, it had to be like uh, 3 inches by 4 inches by 3 inches or something, um, that one could build, you know, solder up together to enclose the, uh, the tuner. Um, and in this case here, there are three switches, one that selects uh, uh, high Z and low Z, another one that actually uh, selects whether you're going to balanced or unbalanced um, conditions, and it uses uh, polyvericon caps, those uh, poly, they're polystyrene caps, are they not, Joe, that small form factor, um, adequate Q, and... Um, uh, but they're kind of popular for small rigs and, and such. Yeah, I can't find a push the dog switch. I was keen on the keyboard. Yeah, the polyvericons are are good. They're small. They're relatively inexpensive. Um, and I think it's a polystyrene dielectric, as I recall. I have the data sheet somewhere. But, um, yeah, they're very good for this. They're, if you talk to a W8JI or W7ZOI, they'll give you the sign of the cross and say, they're terrible, they're low Q, but they're good enough for this job and uh, work quite well, and they're affordable. No, okay. Uh, Pete, Pete uh, perhaps corrects us here and says they're polyethylene. What we're talking about is the dielectric inside these cube-like, uh, well, they're maybe three-quarters of an inch on a side type of, uh, uh, if, if you remember the old transistor radios from yesteryear, they would have... Uh, 
tuning caps that would be used, and these would be those. Uh, somebody else mentioned the MTech ZM1. I have the ZM2, actually, uh, the Z-Match tuner, ZM2, and it uses these same polyvericon caps. And um, the, the, the MTech also does, uses the same type of SWR indicator. Those are very popular. In, in fact, uh, uh, Scott Gregson of uh, MTech still produces the ZM2. So if you're looking for, again, if you're looking for a good uh, antenna tuner, of course, you can go on over to uh, um, the, the Hendrix QRP kits page um, and, and get yourself a BLT. Or you can go over to the MTech uh, page and get yourself a ZM2, which is a little bit more rugged, more field. Uh, I think you drive a tank over that thing just about. And I really enjoy it. And they do have high intensity LEDs for tuning in the, in the bright out of doors. All right, let's move down and kind of head head down the final lap here. Uh, go to the receiver audio section. Joe, you want to comment first on the receiver architecture? And this is where I, I tripped up a little bit earlier, uh, thinking that the audio bandwidth was limited at the baseband, but it's not because this is not a direct conversion receiver. You want to tell us about that, please? Direct perversion. I like it when you talk dirty. Yeah, the receiver is a typical um, KD1JV design, um, with one one exception. It uses SA612s, the, um, the balanced mixer chips, um, popularized or designed originally for the cell phone industry, that um, have a very good, um, they have about 18 dB of gain and um, a balanced uh, design. So they produce a, a relatively good spur-free output. Um, in Steve's implementation here on the front end, there's a um, there are two FETs that are connected to the um, to the transmitter output actually, which are switched. The uh, one is switched off when you're uh, transmitting, so you don't fry the front end of the receiver. Then it's turned on to apply the uh, transmitter the antenna signal through the transmitter's bandpass filter when you're transmitting. There's a, um, a manually tuned, double tuned circuit, which I mentioned earlier, for receiver pre-selection into the first mixer. And the first mixer um, is fed the local oscillator signal from the DDS BFO. Um, and that receiver, that uh, DDS uh, signal is offset from the received signal by 4.9152 megahertz. So that, what that means is when you have a, an on-frequency signal you and a, a, a VFO or a local oscillator offset by that, it produces an output signal at the intermediate frequency, the IF, of 4.9152 uh, megahertz. That then goes through a, um, a four-pole uh, ladder crystal filter, which is set up as a bandpass filter and has, as I recall, a bandwidth of about... 600 hertz with reasonably good uh, steep sides, um, optimum for CW, but uh, certainly would not pass uh, voice. That's the limit limiting factor in this uh, receiver. One of the trade-offs to get simplicity was uh, have a, um, a narrow bandpass for uh, audio. That signal, that's in the block 10 in our block diagram, and um, the schematic. And block 11 then is yet another um, SA612, um, variant of the uh, popular old NE602, 
which is another mixer, which takes the IF, beats it against um, a 4.9152 uh, crystal um, to give you an audio app. Uh, Dale, question? Oh, you know, I got the wrong hotkey on here. <laughs> okay, that's the problem. Um, if you go to settings, uh, George can talk you through it, but it's under settings to set the hotkey. Um, anyway, the second SA612 is yet another balanced mixer that has a, an oscillator built in also that um, beats against the uh, signal out of the IF and produces an audio output. Um, and it's offset by the, um, the tone frequency you want, like five, 700 hertz. So then that produces an output signal, audio output, which is fed to an op-amp to give you some gain to take you up from the uh, microvolt level to um, um, millivolts. And it looks like it's a gain of about 50 with some low-pass filtering. And then there is a, a single section um, bandpass filter uh, peaked up to uh, remove extra noise and whatever to give you a clean uh, audio output which then is fed through a, uh, a MOSFET switch, switch which mutes the receiver when you're uh, transmitting. Um, finally, this audio output goes through a volume control, audio volume control to the output amplifier. Audio amp is an LM386 popular rig, a popular amp that has uh, been around uh, forever, uh, still does a pretty good job, has its limitations, but it's an old workhorse. Also injected into the, um, the 386 is the side tone that George mentioned, so you can hear yourself keying when you transmit. Um, the audio signal also follows another path before it goes to the 386. It goes through a um, transistor uh, detector and an RC circuit and is fed back to one of the FETs, uh, second one of the FETs that's on the input of the receiver which acts as a, an AGC uh, to limit the um, signal going into the receiver when it gets too strong so that you don't overload the front end. Simple AGC, probably pretty effective. And then finally, the uh, LM386 output is fed through some RC sections uh, to prevent it from oscillating, finally through a choke to the um, headphones so that uh, you can hear the signal. The choke is in... Uh, in that circuit to keep RF from getting back into the 3D6 because those chips um, are a lot more broadband than the audio and if you feed RF back into them they squeal like a stuck pig. Any questions? Yeah. Go ahead Rick. If you were designing uh, this circuitry today would you replace all of this in the diagram with a single chip uh, receiver or is the current draw currently too high? Well, you're going to find what you mean by a single, single chip receiver. I don't know of any single chip um, receivers that uh, would be optimized for CW. Well, since you have control of the filters and the oscillators and so forth and a, uh, a, uh, a system on a chip, uh, kind of situation, uh, you could optimize it for whatever you want, I imagine. Yeah, you could. Um, however, coming from a design background, 
I can tell you that the um, the upfront cost of doing the design, um, if you're only going to build a couple hundred of these, uh, you'll never pay yourself back for that time. If you're going to produce 10,000 of them, it's probably worth the effort. Okay. Any, I'm sorry to cut you off, but that's you know that's the basic trade-off. Steve's time, like our time, is very valuable, and maybe he'll produce at most a thousand. And uh, believe me, he's going to put more than a thousand hours into doing a system on a chip to uh, to uh, replace this uh, handful of ICs. Any other questions? You know the um, the uh, I think it was Rick. Or somebody mentioned about the uh, uh, the LM386. I was a little bit surprised to see that Steve did use the 386. While that chip is a very popular one amongst us hobbyists and home brewers, um, it's generally acknowledged that it, uh, as you said, uh, it's kind of with with its high gain and sensitivity to RF feedback, it squeals like a pig. And um, um, I forgot if there was another attribute that wasn't overly favorable. Um, a generally a recommended, uh, a better recommended audio amplifier is an LM380, uh, 380, but it draws a lot of power is one of its drawbacks. I would have thought, though, that there might have been another, yet another type of uh, op amp that were a little bit more manageable from both of those perspectives. What do you think? Yeah, I'm sure there are. I think, uh, I think Steve's thinking is... Um, it's good enough to do the job, and I've got a bunch of them, and they're dirt cheap, so I'll just keep using them. Yeah, and I was going to say that, too. You and I often look at things like that. Okay, what do we have in our little stock stock uh, room in the back here? And uh, we've got some of these chips, and what can we design with that chip in it? Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, especially if the resultant design is just fine, which this one uh, really, really is. Another um, stock part. And you kind of alluded to it up and, and during the, the start of this uh, receiver audio section discussion was the um, SA612. That's been a, a long time with us, and uh, as a balanced mixer, um, it's uh, it, it's been quite a workhorse for us in in the QRP field. Do you want to comment on that, Joe? Sure. Yeah, there are probably better chips that you can use, but. Uh... This one gives you a fair amount of gain. It's relatively uh, stable, um, easy to design with, and uh, operates over a wide frequency range. There are some some uh, chips that are similar in function for the um, um, the higher frequencies for uh, uh, cell phone use that uh, operate at much higher frequencies, but uh, the darn things. Uh, the darn things are optimized for higher frequencies, and they don't work that well at RF. So this one fits the bill. Um, although it has some handicaps, it's not great at handling large signals. It fits the bill in simple rigs, and it's inexpensive. It is, by the way, the replacement for the NE602, and the specs are extremely simple. It's just that when, um, I forget who the heck it was, took over uh, Signetic's product line, they um, respawn the chip probably to um, to make it more economical to produce and rebranded it as the SA612 instead of the uh, NE602. Yeah, and that answers the question that somebody had there 
about, uh, or I guess it was Todd asking about what about the 602? Essentially, the replacement. I don't know if the specs are any better or worse, or at least for our purpose, probably, uh, probably not. I have some really interesting pictures, photos that I put here on the at the bottom of our whiteboard. Um, I found um, the web page from Larry uh, W2LJ, and with uh, with with his uh, gracious allowing us to use the photos attributed here. The wonderful resolution and good shot of the of the PCB for the PFR, and uh, both you know, uh, and as well as uh, his view outside the case with his uh, makeshift paddles on there, and it's it's really uh, um, a nice looking board. You know, this reminds me of uh, I can't think of the name of the project. I did I've done every single one of Steve's projects. I, I really. I really enjoyed building his things. And uh, this reminds me of there's a shortwave receiver board a project that he did a while back. And I and I got a couple of them and built them into uh, into a small box. I love shortwave receivers. I love boat anchor shortwave receivers. And I love even small. The, the one I'm referring to here is the, uh, uh, now it's not the Regen Scout, but it's, uh, it was uh, a, a a one chip type of receiver design kind of thing but about the same size as this board it also had leds for the display and it's just a pleasure uh to tune it and and uh yeah the nor'easter that was it lee thanks and uh the nor'easter is i really enjoyed it and uh it's well laid out it's clean and um uh, there's bits and pieces of of steve you can see in his designs over the years i think you know just an observation here um I need another, I need another uh, uh, QRP rig, like a hole in the head. But I am so tempted just to, I'm going to search eBay or something looking for a used one, uh, just to get it and kind of probe around and experiment with the circuits on here. It's just so well done. I'm, I'm really, uh, I've enjoyed this session here tonight and going through it. It helped me kind of clarify in my mind some of, uh, some of the concepts, the principles of operation. Um, hope it did for you too. We're running up to the end of the of the show here. We're going to give one last call for um, questions and and uh, maybe if you have uh, some words of wisdom um, along this particular project design um, or any observations of your own performance usage of the of the, the PFR, um, we certainly would like to hear from it uh, from you. Go ahead. Uh, this is Lee. Uh, you got any comments you'd like to make between this and Steve's latest design, the uh, uh, I think it's called the Tribander. I do not, um, only because I'm ignorant of that latest one. Joe, do you? Well, yeah, depends on which which you mean. Uh, you're talking about the Tribander or the uh, MTR? I mean the Tribander. I've got one. I've got one of each now, and I haven't gotten playing with the Tribander that much yet. Yeah, the Tribander. It was designed. I believe you can pick any of three bands, um, and it was designed to uh, to be more of a station rig in a fancy uh, fancy cabinet with fewer controls, and um, uh, it it has internal band switching using uh, relays to switch the bandpass filters in um, and the um, filters for the receiver, so that um, there are fewer switches on it. It's probably a very similar circuit. But um, 
there'll be more current drain because you've got a whole bunch of little relays doing the switching and they're burning power uh, all the time. I think it's more of a uh, fixed station rig than uh, for portable operation. All right. Any other uh, other questions about the PFR or any of uh, Steve's techniques and and the design um, or questions about the radio? Yeah, I have one. Sure, I'll go ahead. Uh, the labeling for each pin on uh, chips like U6, uh, U2, where is a good place to uh, get this this information? Uh, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with. Uh, Victor Delta Delta and ground, but uh, most of them I'm not. Where is a good place to uh, research these pin designations? Uh, the best thing to do is look straight to the data sheets, Al. And uh, if you don't already have a Mauser or perhaps better DigiKey for some of the digital circuits uh, bookmarked in your browser, go there, you know, Mauser.com, www.mauser.com, or www.digikey.com and you'll see a parts number um, um, search field up at the top when you do start it up. Put in that part number. In this case here, I, I forgot which one you cited, but let me just use a U1, which is the SA612A. So type in that one, SA612A in return, and uh, maybe directly or maybe just through some additional questions it'll get to a whole list of the chips uh, of that type number generally you can type um, you can click on in the left hand column for any one of them in order to bring up uh, the page for that uh, um, for that part if you wanted to buy it and on that page you'll see a data sheet in fact even on that on the first search results page you would see data sheet and um, and when you open up the data sheet, generally page one is the page that overviews a, an IC's function. And in simple terms, it oftentimes gives a, a package layout. Probably you would see just the same symbol as used here on the schematic, where you would see, again, for the SA612, you would say you would see the in, in, VSS, out, OSC, you know, oscillator, and VCC. Um, and it would kind of describe what those pins are. Um, and then a little bit down into the data sheet, you would see um, typically what those pin labels are. You would see a description in tabular form or like almost in a small uh, Excel spreadsheet table kind of thing. You would see pin one and next you would say it's labeled as in. And the next uh, one, it would probably describe its function a little bit more and sometimes even give its voltage range or the logic state that needs to be applied to that pin in order for the chip to operate right. But if you go and use, the, you know, the data sheets are your friend. Um, sort of like Google is your friend. You know, you can use Google for just about anything these days to really help out. The data sheet is probably, I, I must, every night, every night down here in my shack on my bench, I'm, I must pull up a different data sheet looking at uh, uh, the specs for a different uh, part. And again, whether it's what's the function of a given pin on it, uh, what's the voltage limit of the device? What kind of capacitor should I have to be bypassing it? All of that is contained in the data sheets. And although they can get complex, the first couple pages are usually containing the information you need. So you should get into the habit of checking it out. And I think it's going to be a really useful resource for you. Okay, George, thank you very much on that. Well, 
I, I do a lot of building. I built a TAC-40 that was uh, written up in QST about uh, <clears throat> four years ago. And I download the data sheet for every solid state component in that and put it in a binder. And I have uh, tried to wade through some of the data sheets, but I failed to see the description you're talking about there. But apparently I, did, I didn't get down through it far enough. Thank you very much. I'll go back and uh, check that again. Appreciate it. No problem at all. And um, if, if you go back and you have a question about something, feel free to email directly, and I'll help you kind of go through the, the data sheet and find out the information you're after. Um, by the way, the technique that you use is exactly the one that I follow on my projects. And I'm, I'm, Joe knows this. I must have eight to ten projects going on at any given time here in, in, my, uh, in my shack. And the very first thing that I do, just if I were to see a schematic like this and say, gee, I want to build this, or I'm going to get this kit and I want to understand it, I go down its parts list and I go to DigiKey or Mauser or wherever, and I download the data sheet into a folder that I call parts. And then when I'm either offline or at any other given time and I don't care to go to the net, I'll have locally the data sheets for every single chip that I need such that, you know, like if I'm on the bench and I need to find out, eh, is, is the current draw on this chip or this circuit typical? And in order to answer that, I'd have to go over to the data sheet and look where the ICC, uh, the data parameter called ICC, in the electrical uh, specifications table, and I would see what the typical ICC or current drain is for that chip. And you know, I just add up the, the ICC for this chip and the ICC for that chip and kind of get a ballpark for what is a good, um, acceptable, or typical current draw for the circuit that I'm dealing with. Then I can see if what I'm measuring is uh, typical or atypical. And if it's atypical, of course, i got to find out what's wrong in the circuit. But anyway, it's a good practice to get into, collect your data sheets, and look them over. And again, keep in mind that generally the first page, two, or three are the ones that usually give you the kind of information that, you, that you're asking about here that you would be most often in need of as a home door. Okay, um, any, any more questions before we wrap it? Alrighty. Well, thanks everybody for, uh, for uh, um, being with us here tonight. We really enjoyed, uh, Joe and I enjoyed, we do a lot of prep before the show, as you might imagine. And we enjoyed going through the project this time. And, and this is a fun thing for us, too. And we hope that you were able to kind of see some um, see some features of this radio, the PFR3, uh, that you like. And as I said, uh, I've intrigued myself enough that I want to look for maybe one on the used market and see if I can play around a little bit with it. Uh, and, uh, and, and maybe even take it to the next QR, uh, the NJQRP meeting we're going to be having out of doors. Uh, not this weekend, but the coming weekend, the 15th. So we're going to have an out of doors meeting. We're going to have as many rigs with us as we can. There's going to be a KX3 that uh, Ray, hopefully, is going to bring along as a, a K2ULR uh, rig, you know, the KX3, same two with Bob, K2UT. Um, we're going to have the KX1. We're going to have the PFR. We're going to have uh, uh, ourselves a grand old time. The AT Joe, bring along your ATS. Uh, we're going to have some good transmitters, good uh, good uh, antennas up, and, and have uh, some good time. So, um Hope you've enjoyed going through the features, the capabilities here. Um, we tried to do an unbiased kind of uh, review, um, interactive review as it may be, but nonetheless, uh, 
maybe give you some insight if you're looking into getting a low-cost, all um, three-band, uh, field-friendly uh, radio, uh, portable field radio, portable-friendly radio, uh, you know where to go to get one. And I think they're currently still in stock, uh, although the key, the integrated key, is no longer, but you're able to plug in a, an eighth-inch stereo uh, uh, plug with your standard uh, key. Uh, we could have an entire session just on keys and, and paddles and, and such. But you, you probably would enjoy yourself as you get this thing built up. And everybody that we've talked to, especially Dale, and we thank Dale very much for his input and uh, uh, comments yesterday as we had him on the phone. And just another plug for Dale as well. We didn't mention it, but Dale offers his services at uh, a very, very reasonable price. So um, if you happen to need some help, and this is the key, if you have, if you really need some help getting the kit together, especially if it's a PFR3, uh, contact Dale, and we'll have his information on our website. And uh, you can negotiate with him, and I think you'll find him to be uh, um, just a really nice guy who does a great service, and you with he guarantees the work like none I've ever seen before. So Dale, kudos to you. And uh, thanks for helping out our, us in the QRP world as you do. So, Joe, any final words uh, just uh, just to, to say before we say goodnight? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Thanks again to Dale, that's for sure, and to uh, for Lee for chiming in too. It's always good to have the users here. One of the things I neglected to mention about the um, um, pros of the PFR3 is that um, while the ATS rigs were all surface mount. Uh, the majority of the um, the portable friendly radio is uh, through hole components, so it's much easier to build. There are a couple uh, surface mount chips, but they come pre-mounted on the board. So that for those who are afraid of uh, afraid of surface mount chips, that's uh, another incentive to buy the uh, PFR3. On all, a good radio. It's a uh, uh, a good portable niche. Simple rigs if you don't have the uh, Fourteen hundred dollars to buy a full-up KX3. Indeed. Okay. Once again, thanks everybody. We'll see you all next week. We'll uh, we'll have a good time on the same time, same channel here on Teamspeak at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern time, which is zero 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 Zulu. On uh, chat with the designers. Good night. Mm -hmm.